When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everybody. I'm so happy you're, you're joining us. We have Dr. Raj here today, and he has a special pulmonary <laughs> review set up for you. Dr. Raj is going to allow time for uh, questions from the audience. So please, any questions you have, start putting them in the Q&A window. And that's it for me, Dr. Raj. For those who don't know, my name is Dr. Raj, and uh, I just want to say thank you for joining me today. And I'm actually super excited, and most people say I, I always seem really excited, <laughs> and I guess that's kind of true. But um, we're doing a pulmonary board review, and I know that boards are coming up, my fellows here at USC. Um, I, I mean, I would say they're stressed, but no, they're, they're pretty cool, uh, you know, fellows, and I think that they're all going to do wonderful, and I always wish them the best. But um, my advice to them is always, take a breath you know what i mean like in through the nose (laughs) out through the mouth to kind of hey you got this but i think it's really nice that api invited me here to do kind of a you know air quote last minute high yield board review of a couple of my you know picks of what i think might be on the board exam so you know i got a bunch of questions and i think i actually put too many questions and uh let's see how far we go today okay first question so this is going to be a 62 year old patient planning a dream vacation so this is going to be going to africa and he wants to know what uh he should do to prepare for a hike to the top of mount kilimanjaro so this is going to be a mountain that's almost twenty thousand feet above sea level other than exercising which i'm sure he needs uh, to get in shape he explains that because of his tight travel timeline he pretty much wants to climb this mountain he wants to summit in like two or three days uh, in order to see a little more wildlife uh, on the African savanna. Good for him. Uh, he has been in good overall health. He has well controlled hypertension. He takes an ARB. He has hyperlipidemia. He takes a statin and he has some allergies and they include uh, sulfa medications. And apparently he develops um, anaphylaxis. So this is not really like your run of the mill allergy. I mean, this is anaphylaxis hit me with that EpiPen. So this is pretty bad, you know? And he also has an allergy to shellfish and that's not too bad. He gets like a rash. So on exam today in your in your office, uh, vital signs are within normal limits. Uh, nothing really jumps out at me, including the physical exam. 
So other than, you know, doing the obvious, cautioning him uh, that he needs to kind of give me a, him a little more time to acclimate when he's going to such high altitude, uh, what would be considered the most appropriate pharmacological recommendation to prevent something called acute mountain sickness based on, of course, air quote guidelines. And there are many guidelines out there. And you, and you see what the uh, choices are. A is going to be ibuprofen, B for ginkgo, uh, C for acetazolamide, and D for dexamethasone. That worked out kind of nice. So I'm going to go back. So I'm going to kind of look at this a little bit. And so number one, why do they put this on your board exams? Because, you know, when we talk about all you young folks out there, and I feel like I'm on the older side, you know, that people like doing extreme sports. People like climbing. Climbing is huge. You mean, whether you're going to the gym to climb or climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro, people like going into the ocean. People like deep sea diving. So going to unusual environments is going to be a very common question on the boarding exams. And I would say of the two things I just mentioned, you know, going in the water, in the ocean and high altitude, Almost every year, and I took the board exams twice myself, there's always a high altitude mountain question in there. So I really wanted to put this there. So what do you think is going to be the right answer here? So I would say the key thing is that, are we talking about prophylaxis? Are we talking about treatment? And the answer is we're talking about, you know, prophylaxis. But one of the biggest pearls here is going to be the fact that, you know, he's got this kind of like, not even an allergy to sulfa he's getting anaphylaxis. So by default, and we're gonna really break down this question, the answer here is gonna be D for dexamethasone, but let's talk about the most important thing is why, you know what I mean? So first off, let's talk about Mount Kilimanjaro. Now this is not gonna be on the boards, but it is the tallest mountain in Africa. And I found out through a little research that the oldest person to ever summit was 87 years old. So now I feel pretty young again, and you know how, fast he actually went up to the, to the summit it took him five hours and 38 minutes so you know usually if you want to go 20 you know if you're going 20,000 feet that's going to be kind of like what is it like three and a half four miles somewhere in there so wow that's still really really impressive of how high he went so 25,000 people summit you know successfully um or at least attempt to summit and around two thirds of the 20,000 people actually are successful. And the main reason why they can't do it is these altitude related problems, you know? So let's, you know, talk about these altitude related problems. So to, in order to understand the pathophysiology for that and what's gonna be tested for basic science on the pulmonary boards is when we talk about what regulates our breathing. And of course, if we're talking about blood pressure, we talk about baroreceptors. But if we're talking about re regulating our minute ventilation, we're talking about chemoreceptors. And when we talk about chemoreceptors, they're located in two places where the central nervous system and, or, and the CNS and the peripheral and the central chemoreceptors and we have also the chemoreceptors that are, are going to be in the carotids and in the aortic arch. And those are going to be our peripheral chemoreceptors. So what do our central chemoreceptors sense? It's going to be two things. Number one, they're going to sense localized hydrogen ion. You can see right here in the CSF. And number two, they're going to sense dissolved CO2, dissolved CO2, the PaCO2, like the one you get when you get an arterial blood gas. 
When we talk about those peripheral chemoreceptors, we said once again, aortic arch and carotids, they're going to sense two things, everyone. It's going to be the dissolved oxygen, which is the uh, P little a O2, and once again, the dissolved carbon dioxide, the P little a CO2. And what really cranks up your minute ventilation is going to be when the CO2 is climbing or when the oxygen is lowering. And if you had to pick which one of those two really influences your minute ventilation the most, whether it's going to be central or peripheral, it's definitely got to be the dissolved CO2 receptors. So how do I show that like in a graphic? Like right here. So when we talk about our PaCO2, it's down here on the um, x-axis. You know, if you do an ABG on me, my PaCO2 should be around 40. And look at this, the minute it starts going up to like 50 or 60, look what's on the x-axis or the y-axis. This is going to be the minute ventilation. So the minute the CO2 starts going up a little bit, your minute ventilation really doubles and triples. But look at this graph on the left. And once again, this is your dissolved oxygen. As your PaO2 goes down, and we're going down from 100 to 90 to 80 to 70 to 60, well, it really doesn't increase your minute ventilation until it really, you are st start becoming significantly hypoxic. So really the take home messages in most cases, what controls, you know, your ventilatory drive, it's gonna be the dissolved CO2, but O2 will definitely take over when you are significantly hypoxic. And why am I making such a big stink about this is because when you're going to 20,000 feet, wow, your atmospheric pressure is going to be really low. It's not going to be that 760 millimeters of mercury here at sea level. And because it's so low, your P literal AO2 would be significantly low. And because it's so low, what's really going to take over the drive to breathe your minute ventilation is going to be the hypoxia, not really the CO2 going up, but the O2 being really, really low. So how can they ask that question on the pulmonary boards right here? So when we talk about going to high altitude, they can do one of two questions. What happens like in this case, someone wants to go up acutely, or what's gonna happen when someone's living in high altitude for a certain period of time? And let me just say this, on the boards, they're really never gonna give you an ambiguous time period, meaning that someone was in Mount Kilimanjaro for one week and four days, and you're like, well, did they, you know, accommodate? Did they acclimate? I can't tell. It's either going to be they're going up acutely, or they've been there for a significant amount of time, months to years. But on the board exams, at least for the last two times I took the boards, they love talking about what happens acutely, like in this gentleman who is going to ascent really rapidly. So the take-home message to understand what happens to this person is to start off with what happens to your dissolved oxygen. Because remember, they're going to be in such high altitude, their P big AO2 is going to be significantly low because the atmospheric pressure is going to be low. So because that, you know, alveolar oxygen is going to diffuse into the capillary, your P little AO2 will subsequently be very low. So because it's going to be significantly low, that takes over the drive to breathe. Therefore, minute ventilation is going to go up when you go up acutely to high altitude. Therefore, what's going to happen as your minute ventilation goes up, it means that your CO2 is going to go down. And as your CO2 goes down, of course, your pH is going to go up. You're going to develop a what? 
respiratory alkalosis. And when you go up acutely to high altitude, well, what's going to happen to your hemoglobin? The answer is, well, nothing, because going to high altitude doesn't affect your hemoglobin level. Now, what's going to happen to the amount of oxygen bound to the hemoglobin? Well, if you're going to be on high altitude, the P little a O2, your dissolved oxygen, is going to be quite low. We talked about that already. So the oxygen tension will be low. So you're never going to fully saturate your hemoglobin with oxygen. Therefore, your O2 stat is going to be what? low. And because your O2 sat is low, and that's the majority form of oxygen, this is why when you want to summit Mount Kilimanjaro, some people carry one up there, supplemental oxygen. And of course, they're asking the question, what happens to total arterial oxygen content? Well, you know, I mean, if your, you know, O2 sat's going down, your total arterial oxygen content has to go what? Down. Now, I'll go over the second column really briefly. So what happens if you stay in Mount Kilimanjaro for weeks to months. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but you know, your PO2 is still going to remain low because you're still in super high altitude, 20,000 feet. So what's going to happen to your, you know, CO2? It's still going to be low because you're still hyperventilating. What happens to your pH? Well, you've had a respiratory alkalosis for quite some time. So you're going to start to compensate. And what organs really going to try to compensate for you? It's got to be the kidney, right? So what's going to happen to your pH? It's going to try to come down. It's going to try to normalize. It won't, you know, 100% normalize because you're not going to overcompensate, but it's going to start to normalize, right? But if they were to ask you, hey, what happens to your hemoglobin when you're in Mount Kilimanjaro for, you know, months? Well, it's going to go up. Why? Because of my favorite hormone in the whole world, which is EPO. So whenever the poitin kicks in, what's going to happen? You're going to increase your RBCs. You're going to be polycythemic. Why? Because you want more taxicabs to carry that oxygen throughout the body. But what happens to the amount of oxygen bound to the hemoglobin? Well, it still has to be low. Why? Because you're in Mount Kilimanjaro. So your P big AO2 your alveolar oxygen has to be low because atmospheric pressure is low. Therefore, your P little AO2 has got to be low too. And because it is low, you'll never fully saturate that hemoglobin. So your O2 sat will be low. And of course, when we talk about total arterial oxygen content, it may go up a little bit. Why? Because you're now polycythemic. And so it's going to try to go towards normal, but it will never actually normalize. So with that being said, let's go back to this question. So when we talk about travel to altitudes greater than 8,000 feet, and that's going to be important. Why? Because when you're in an airplane, what do we pressurize the cabin to? 8,000 feet. You're going to be at risk of developing some of these acute altitude illnesses. Which ones? Maybe acute mountain sickness, which is a very generic term, but that's going to be in line with a spectrum of worsening disease called high altitude cerebral edema, HACE, and high-altitude pulmonary edema, known as HAPE. So <clears throat> we're going to define what, you know, um, acute mountain sickness is. We're going to talk about uh, HACE and HAPE in the next slide. But when we talk about a, a high mountain sickness, what are going to be some of those symptoms as they're going up? They could have heavy breathing, 
They can feel nauseated, dizziness. Now, these are very nonspecific. They could definitely have hallucinations, visual hallucinations. They could develop a headache. They could have an upset stomach. And at this point, if you're not going to be addressing acute mountain sickness, which is descent, 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 you're definitely going to be at a higher risk for developing the cerebral edema and the high altitude pulmonary edema. So when we talk about who develops you know, acute mountain sickness, well, it really depends on, you know, the individual. And so, you know, I think one of those things that um, may factor in could be age. And in fact, you know, people are a little on the older side, probably develop acute mountain sickness and haste uh, a little bit less than others. And we'll talk about that in a second, but it's who's susceptible. And sometimes we just don't know, of course, how high you're going. So the higher you are, the, the, the chances of developing this increases. And of course, the rate of ascent. So of course, the biggest thing you want to do with this patient is say, I know you want to check out the savanna while you're there, but you know, you have to decrease your rate of ascent. And in general, how does acute mountain sickness present? I just put this here, kind of like a bad alcoholic hangover. And if those who don't know what that feels like, good for you, <laughs> headache, fatigue, lightheadedness, nausea, vomiting, difficulty sleeping. But let's talk about the worst case scenarios. What happens if you develop this high altitude cerebral edema? So usually this occurs in individuals who are developing HAPE at the same time, that high altitude pulmonary edema. So when we talk about some of the hallmarks of haste, high altitude cerebral edema, there are a lot of these encephalopathic signs and symptoms, right? You're going to have an ataxic gait. You're going to have a lot of confusion. You may even get drowsy and stuporous. And of course, the worst case scenario is going to be coma, you know? So when we talk about why, you know, well, think of it this way. Number one is that when we talk about going to high altitude, the blood flow going to the brain, you know, in order to go through those, you know, carotid arteries, they're influenced by O2 and CO2. So what happens is when you're going to, you know, those high altitudes, you're so hypoxic, what are you doing? You're hyperventilating. You're getting a respiratory alkalosis. And because your CO2 is low, what happens to blood flow um, with, uh, because you're so hypoxic, excuse me, what happens to blood flow going to the CNS? So when we talk about blood flow influenced by the carotids, when you are, you know, hyperventilating, sure, when the CO2 is low, you're going to vasoconstrict, but when you're so hypoxic, you're going to vaso what? Dilate. And when we talk about being so hypoxic, because they're going to be where? In high altitude with the, you know, atmospheric pressure being so low, you're going to dilate to get more oxygen to your brain. And when you dilate the, the uh, carotid uh, arteries, well, you're going to get more blood flow. Flow is volume over a period of time. So if more volume is going to the brain, remember the brain's going to be surrounded by what? The skull, the cranium. And so when we talk about that, it's called the Monroe-Kelly hypothesis that states that, you know, that um, the amount of swelling that occurs, well, it really is because of the fact that, you know, the skull is just 100 million percent non-compliant and there's really not much room to swell. And that's why when we talk about why do um, I mentioned older individuals may not get the high altitude mountain sickness as much or the haste is because their brain tends to, you know, atrophy a little bit as you get older. And because you atrophy, you may have more room for swelling because in that skull, there's only a fine balance between 
brain tissue and CSF, you know, and blood. So there's really no room. So if you're young and you're going up there, you're getting increased blood flow because what happens, the hypoxia is dilating those, you know, carotid arteries for more blood flow to the brain. You know, that could be one of the reasons why you develop this cerebral edema. So this is a classic diagram they may give you on your pulmonary boards. And when we look at the y-axis, this is cerebral blood flow. And when we look at the x-axis, we're going to be looking at decreasing values of PaO2 and PaCO2. So what did I just mention on the previous one? What happens to cerebral blood flow as uh, you become hypoxic? And you're hypoxic because you're going to be in high altitude. So as your PO2 goes down and down and down and down, look at the PaO2, which is circled in the red, cerebral blood flow is going higher and higher and higher. Versus when we talk about hyperventilating, as your CO2 goes down and down and down and down, what happens to cerebral blood flow that it's going to what? Decrease because you are hyperventilating that they already you are going to squeeze those uh, carotid arteries and less blood flow is going to go where? Uh, to the uh, central nervous system. And that's why when you hyperventilate sometimes, they make you hyperventilate in a bag so you, you won't pass out. So when we talk about acute mountain sickness and high altitude cerebral edema, and how do we treat it? Well, the minute you suspect it, I mean, the answer is descend as quickly as possible. If you start having symptoms, what are other things you could do? If you brought up some dexamethasone, sure. You know what I mean? If you have supplemental oxygen, Yes, good. What's the big problem here? Is that you're hypoxic, you know? And, you know, in some cases of people who are professionals who climb up here, you know what I mean? There are such things as, you know, these portable hyperbaric chambers. I put a picture of it down there. And of course, bringing supplemental oxygen as they go up because they're aware of these things. You know, if they do have dexamethasone, why should you take it right away? Because it works quickly. And you should start dosing yourself if you're symptomatic. Um, with dexamethasone as it will give you a buffer to try to descend. So when we talk about prophylaxis, not treatment, prophylaxis, well, when should clinicians recommend, you know, prophylactic medications when they're going to be at a moderate to high risk situation? So in this vignette, the person says, no matter what, I'm super climbing up there, you know, as fast as possible. So he is going to be at high risk. And so prophylactic therapy is indicated. Acetazolamide is the recommended first-line prophylactic therapy. But in this case, what do we say? This patient is going to be allergic to sulfa drugs. And, you know, when someone's going to high altitude, if there's some kind of reaction, drug reaction that may happen, you don't want to risk it. Why? Because you're going to be at high altitude. There's not much you could do there. So because he has that, you know, um, allergy, I definitely would not use uh, acetazolamide in this case. The other choices, well, there were some data about ibuprofen, but once again, taking ibuprofen a lot could be someone who'd be at risk for the GI, PUD, peptic ulcer disease, or if they have known kidney disease, I wouldn't be using non-steroidals. Ginkgo, once again, very small studies, you know, I mean, doesn't have as much evidence-based medicine as using something like acetazolamide. And of course, if you can't tolerate acetazolamide, then you could go ahead and consider alternative prophylaxis, which is going to be dexamethasone, which was the answer choice in this case. So with that being said, um, wow, I hope you really enjoyed that question because over the last two times I took my board exams, they definitely had something for high altitude.
Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.